Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 305, and our guest today is one of our favorites, and judging by podcast history, also one of your favorites. Paul the Elknut Medell joins us once again. If you've heard Paul on our podcast or many others, you know what a treat you're in for. I always enjoy talking with Paul. It's one of those things where I ask a question and Paul takes that and runs with it and provides so much helpful information. And that's certainly the case today. If you want to hear more from Paul Medell, I will leave links in the show description to the prior episodes where we featured Paul. And we've talked with Paul many times about elk calling, specific elk hunting scenarios, the language of elk, and so much more. So if you get a taste of something in today's episode that you want to hear Paul talk more about, check out the previous episodes with Paul at the links in that show description. As always, guys, we hope that this podcast is going to help you on your future hunts. Stay in touch and let us know how those hunts go here in the coming weeks and months. Send some photos to podcast at xmongear.com, or if you do have a specific question, comment, or anything like that for the show, send an email with that as well. Enough jibber-jabbering, let's get right into it with Paul, the Elknut Medell. Paul, welcome back to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I 100% mean it. I'm always excited to talk with you, man. I'm glad you're here. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate you guys, you know, uh, asking me once again. Uh, I, I always enjoy talking with the Hunt Back Country guys, for sure. You guys are some of my favorites, and, and that's the truth, too. There's no doubt about it. So anytime these come up, I'm excited about it, and I never turn them down when when you guys ask never <laughs> yeah appreciate that Paul. yeah we do appreciate it it's uh we've had you on the podcast several times and in, in years past and steve and i it's crazy we always talk like how has it been six years since we've been doing this podcast but for listeners who maybe haven't heard prior episodes i'll leave links in the show description to those but just a quick story i honestly wasn't planning on telling this but just thought of it as we hopped here on the phone and i think i mentioned this prior in one of the old episodes but paul i had called you years and years ago before i was working for exo before i was doing anything in the industry uh, i just got your number from i think purchasing some of your stuff and called you one day with like a, a what i thought was like a pretty gonna be quick question i thought man he's a busy guy we're not gonna be on the phone long and i was driving home from work and it's a 25 minute drive at the time and we talked the whole time and i got close to my house and I had to pull over and wait to go in the door because we just kept chatting and you spent 45 minutes on the phone with me, I bet, chatting El Cunning. And uh, it was just when I was getting started and that uh, memory just came back to me. And just want to thank you for your passion for El Cunning and how willing you are to help people. Oh, heck, are you kidding me? <laughs> no problem, man. My wife says, everybody, every time somebody calls me, she says, you're giving a seminar. What is the deal with that? Just <laughs> answer the question. But I, I have the most difficult time to just say, you know, what's black, what's white, and that's it, and then be be done with it. But uh, thanks, because I, I didn't even know. Did you ever tell me this before? Because I don't remember it. I thought I may have mentioned it, but I, Paul, I bet this was eight plus years ago or something oh like goodness. that, that phone call. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm sure I don't. I, I, as you probably uh, can appreciate, I, I get hundreds a year. So it's hard to remember sure. everyone unless there's something dramatic about it you know that that stuck in my mind but other than that 
well, I would say I just apologize for not remembering, but I, I know exactly. No. I, I, once you get the word elk out, I, uh, I seem to snowball down the mountain. I don't know why I just do. <laughs> <laughs> if here's an interesting place to start and maybe this is probably not, maybe you don't have anything that comes to top of mind, but I'm kind of curious with all of the hunters you talk to, you know, you're doing different podcasts and all that. Is there anything that comes to mind that you feel like gets overlooked? So I'm sure you get, you know, common questions a lot and things like that, but is there anything where like, I wish guys would ask more about this or think more about this, or I think that this aspect of elk hunting is maybe overlooked by people. Does anything come to mind for that? Well, that is a tough question. It's funny. I mean, it, it, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that was physical conditioning and not just physical conditioning. It's physical conditioning for people 50 and over. I don't know why. That's mm. the first popped in my mind. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and at 66, I, I, I can see the importance of it. It, it wasn't as important to me when I was, you know, I would even say 30s, 40s, and even up to 50. It really didn't mean that much. I always have been a workout person to stay in shape for hunting. But I did notice that once I hit 50 and 55, 60, 65, and now 66 and 67 is around the corner, it, I, I can see that you know, for myself, I have to make sure I work out year round because it's not like when I was younger to say, yeah, I'm just going to go start working out the last, you know, 30 or 60 days. You can't do that. It doesn't work. I mean, if you're young, I think your system, your body recuperates real quick and and, and you can get to where you left off maybe, uh, you know, as you were younger, but nowadays it's not like that. Yeah, I could say, oh, it's about the calling and it's about the emotion of the elk and it's uh, the gear, blah, blah. But really, it boils down for me. And I think maybe one of the reasons that I even say this is because I have been getting a whole lot of emails and texts about, Paul, what are you doing to at your age to be still so fired up and go hunt 20, 25 straight days at your age? How are you doing and, and one of these days, would you do a podcast on, 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 on exactly what you do to stay in the kind of shape that you can still go out and do this without batting an eye? And, and so when you ask that question, it really probably was foremost because I get it. I've been asked it quite a bit recently for the physical conditioning, but I still I am still the guy 100 percent that says everything is on calling and setups. That's what it is. You want to kill elk as a bow hunter? You better know your calling and how to set up everything outside of that. It's just like putting little pieces of the puzzle together. It's not a big deal. It, it, it's most of it's common sense, to be honest with you. When you're out there and if you make a mistake, it's like, oh, why'd I do that? You already know why you made a mistake. But when it comes to the real calling and communication, and, and, that, and that's really what I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to say here is the communication of elements. Because when you look at the kill rate on, especially OTC hunts, which we all hunt, we all love draw hunts. I drew an Arizona tag this year. I hardly ever put in and I drew actually a good tag. And so I'm like, wow, I'm going to Arizona and I don't put in for any other state. It was just that one. And I drew it. And so I'm excited about it. I think a lot of people would be that, that got it as well as I'm going to hunt Idaho. But when I look at the calling and the setups, I think, you know, outside of physical conditioning, those things are the most important because if you can't communicate with elk, you're going to have a lot of difficulty in filling your tags. And because a bull bugles back to you, that doesn't mean you're communicating with elk. 
That has nothing to do with it. That just means you got to bull the bugle back to you. Doesn't mean you're going to put them on the ground. And, and, and the easy part is, is that part. But if you're not going to communicate with them in, in a way that you understand what they're basically sending a message back to you and you sending one back, that's a communication. You're looking at over the counter. Most people are hunting. And you got to admit that the stats are right on the money. It's like 8 to 10% to be effective to fill your tag. But why are the other 90, 92% not filling them? when they all know how to calcom people. It shows you, you have to understand and communicate with elk more than saying, I know how to make some great, awesome elk sounds. And some of the top killers out there, if you talk to, you know, like the born and raised guys and you talk to Dirk and Jason and Corey, you're going to find out this is what they're starting to rely on. Because years ago, you could just make a lot of really good elk sounds and you would have elk coming. But things have evolved, guys. There's no question in my mind. And I know you guys have been out there enough that it's more than just making elk sounds these days. That level of communication has slowly crept in because of wolves, a lot more hunting pressure, uh, you know, lions, bears, it's everything. And, and, and that's what I'm noticing. And, but yet the elk are still vocal, even where people say they aren't. But if you'll do your homework and really understand how to communicate and how to set up, the setup is so, so important. It's almost equal with good calling. So, you know, yeah. it, those things for me that hit a home run. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back and touch on some of those points on dealing with pressure and on communication and even hear more about your Arizona hunt, but can we go ahead and talk about the fitness aspect? Because fitness isn't overlooked in hunting, but I think a lot of times it's misunderstood or maybe yeah. too marketed, right? So there's a lot of 20 and 30 year old guys out there pushing fitness, but I am curious with your perspective, Paul doing it for decades, still hunting hard at 66, turning 67 here in a bit. What does that look like for you specifically? First, you, I'm a self-motivator. I don't go to the gym. And so I think that carries a lot of weight. A lot of people need to have encouragement, support around them to help push them. And my encouragement and that motivation for me is elk hunting and being able to elk hunt with my son. And, 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 and guys like him. And so I know I have to push myself, you know, year round to stay at a level that allows me to do at least do something. There's no way you guys are going to find out as you get older. You can't buy back youth. You just can't. There's no, there's no price you can do to get youth back. So you do the best you can, you know, with what you have to work with. And, and there's people that, I, that inspire me. Probably one of the biggest guys that inspire me is Elk Shape, and that's Dan State. He really does. Uh, and, and why, I have no idea. He's just turning 40, and I'm so much older than that. But there's something about his ethic and his work ethic behind it and his mindset. And, and, and watching a couple little clips, he's packing elk at some of the steepest country you've ever seen. And he's looking at the camera, and he says, I live for this. This is awesome. And most guys are out there dying. And they're just, you know, they're hating life. You know what it's like having a pretty good load of elk meat? And he makes the comments like that. And things like that, when I see that, it's just like, God, that's exactly how I am. That's the mindset I need to maintain. And then I remember somebody telling me one day, it's funny how things come back around. And they were telling me how Steve Speck is an animal out there. And I said, you're kidding me. And I said, no. They said, this guy is unreal. He used to be 
uh, used to do, uh, Steve, I don't know. I've never talked to you about it, but they said he used to be like a, a mountain bike rider or something. And they said, you cannot keep up with this guy. And I said, what is it? And I said, I don't know. It's just something about his energy is endless. And it's things like that. And Steve, I thought about this many times and I've never discussed it with you, but things <laughs> like that, when somebody says it to me, it sinks home. Otherwise, I'd have never remembered that. And this was years ago. Somebody told me this about you. Oh, funny. <laughs> you about my guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> I credit the getting into biking and racing as something that kind of pushed me to the, a different level, for sure. It, and then maybe it was Tyler Crockett or somebody that said, I don't even know if it was, somebody told me and I don't remember, but, but, but it, it, those little things like that, it, it, they, they hit home. And maybe it wouldn't hit home if I was 40. I'm like, yeah, big deal. But as you get older, it's those little tidbits or, you know, those little crumbs that are sprinkled out there. And if you're serious about what you're doing, you kind of you, you attach yourself to those things and say, man, what can I do personally? And so I kind of take all these little things that I've seen and, you know, my own stuff. But but it's like calling elk. There's a lot of successful guys out there that are really good at elk hunting. But you know what? They don't mind picking up a nugget here and a nugget there and, and, and so on and so forth to make themselves a little bit better. And that's the same with a workout program. I pick up these little things and, and I think having the right mindset. I talk to myself a lot when I'm when I'm running or and I run three days a week and I carry a pack four days a week. And then I work out Monday, Wednesday and Friday for two hours each day. And I can do this. I have the luxury of doing it. These days, because I've been, I've been retired, you know, quite a while, almost 14 years, but I always worked out even when I was working. And a lot of people would say, well, they knew I was a masonry contractor and they go, wasn't that hard enough? I said, it isn't even close to hard enough. Yeah, it's a difficult job, but it doesn't raise that level of endurance and that mindset, that mindset of don't give up. It doesn't do that. It just means you've worked your muscles. You've done this and that. But then every evening when I was a contractor, I would come home and my wife will tell you and I'd work out and work out and I would push myself. And, and so I still do it today, but I appreciate looking guys, looking at different ones around me. And I've even looked at Cameron Haynes and just said, you know what? You can love that guy. You can hate him. I don't care what you say. I focus on look at what this guy accomplishes physically. Look what he does. He is an inspiration. He really is. And, 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 and I look back at myself and I say, how can I be something like that? You know, how can I be something like Dan Elkshape? And, I, and I've done, I, I've been around Dan, you know, and did some podcasts with him, several of them and did a seminar with him. And, and Dan is, he's the real deal. He's just a super nice guy. And, and, and I know who Steve is. I don't know you that well. I've never hunted with you, but I've hunted with Lanny and stuff. But at the same time, you, you, your mind revolves around these things. And as far as, you know, I run usually two, two miles. I'm not, I'm not a triathlon distance runner guy. I go about two miles on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and usually on Saturday and Sunday, if I can. And then as I run, I come right back. I change my shoes and go into the boots I'm going to be hunting with. And then I throw a pack on and it usually will run anywhere from 50 to 60 pounds. And I usually go about three miles with that. So I try to do it right in a row, nonstop, because I want to build up that endurance. And when I walk with a pack, I don't know if you guys have ever seen me. I am going. There's none of this. You're walking and I've got a walking stick or what do you call them? Trekking pole. I don't use them <laughs> uh, personally, but 
I am moving. I am moving like my butt's on fire almost as much as I, <laughs> I can go because I realize I need to build a, a type of endurance in my legs and my lungs by just casually moving around. There's no resistance. And that's my mindset. I need resistance for what I'm doing and trying to get that, you know, uh, that level of once the mountains hit me, I, I can attack it or feel comfortable about attacking it and not leaving nothing for chance. And, and, and so between that and then the, the workout with weights and stuff that I do, the combination, it really helps me a lot. But I know there's nobody, there's not many people at my age that are driven like this. And so I don't expect everybody to do it. But if guys would just do something, you know, we're not all tree stand hunters. So you, it, it takes a level of, of, of determination and, and physical ability. And you, you, it, it plays out in my entire life. It's not like it's just elk hunting. It makes me feel better all the way around. And I mean, what do you guys think? I know you guys are doing things that are similar to what I'm doing. How does it help you uh, along with what I'm, I'm saying here myself? I'm not alone here. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, one thing that stands out to me and what you said there, Paul, and just in knowing you shoot, even in, in scheduling this podcast is you've made the choice and the commitment to make training something you do. Like it's not something that just happens. It's not something like when I get around to it or when it's convenient or what have you. And again, as you said, it's easier for you to do now because you're retired, but even back when you were putting in the long hours, you just made that commitment. I mean, we even we had a listener email come in recently. It was like asking like, how do you and Steve get the motivation to train? And I think motivation is only part of it. Like motivation is going to come and go. You just have to make the commitment. You have to set aside the time. You just have to make it part of what you do on a regular basis. Cause otherwise mm -hmm. life's for sure going to get in the way and you're not just going to get around to it. Oh man, I agree hundred percent. Some of my best yeah. times are the days I don't want to do it. You do, you mm -hmm. have days, man. It's like, I, I just don't want to do this today. And so then I push myself and do it. I miss none. I promise you, unless I, I have no choice because of, you know, I'm going somewhere or I have to be here. That something important, you know, that's different. But I miss nothing. And there are a lot of days that I don't feel like doing it. But it seems like once I'm into it for five to 10 minutes, I am so happy I did it. And it seems like once I start grinding it, because I'm going to tell you something, guys, when I work out, I work my butt off. There's none of this grabbing 10 pounds and da, 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 da. This isn't no TV video thing where you're just trying to stretch a little muscle out or something. I mean, I hit it really hard and I work myself until sometimes I mean, I can't even move that weight. And so I, I and then I try to wait maybe 45 seconds to hit the next one because that's how I build my endurance. If you're just going to go through some motions and dink around, that ain't going to cut it because you know something? The elk don't care. They could care less if you're in shape or not. They're not going to, you know, look at you and feel sorry for you. There's nothing like that. And, and so I have that mindset of that motivation. And that's why a lot of times when I'm running or if I'm taking the pack or working out, I, I'm repeating it over and over. The elk don't care. Paul, the elk don't care. I, I, it probably sounds like I'm a crazy guy if anybody was there, but nobody <laughs> is around. You know, I'm not dumb, but I, I, that's, my, that's my extra kick in the butt to just say, you got to keep going. You got to keep going. And, you know, cause a lot of things like that don't come natural, but my workout, you know, seven days a week, I stretch out. I do the same exact stretch out, which takes me about 15 minutes. And I do it every single day. 
uh, of my life. I've done it forever. But then, you know, I, like I say, I can't even name the things that I do. I don't even know if there's names for them, but everything requires weights. And, you know, I mean, the normal stuff for military and curls. And I can't do bench because it pops my back out immediately. And so I can't do any bench presses. And, and I used to, and I used to be really strong at it. You know, honest to God, I weighed 138 pounds and I could bench press 280. And I did this for years. And, and, but I was never a big guy. I did it all just trying to build up, not just strength, but stamina and perseverance, you know? And, and then as I got older, it wound down to 240, 250. And then I weighed closer to 150 and my, and you think you'd get stronger, but it didn't work that way for me. So <laughs> now when I'm laying down, I can only do, I do like 40 pounds in each arm laying down and I just lift one at a time and I'll do maybe 15 to 30 reps of them and it doesn't bother my back. So, you know, I've substituted things just to know I was still exercising those parts and you do flies with them on your back. And I mean, you know, it's just, just there, you can do a lot of things in two hours and, and, and probably my biggest thing that I do that I would recommend to everybody is to get a set of those springs that you pull apart. You know what you you know what I mean. You 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 put them in front of you, and it has a like a black handle. When you have three sets, oh yeah, and you I don't know what you call them, chest springs or something. Uh-huh. If you want to build up your bow arm really easy, that's some of the best things to do. And I mean, do a lot, and then when you release, when when it's time, when you got it fully extended, release them slow, like you're releasing your bow slow. How many times you see a guy pull back, and then when he needs to come down because he didn't fire the shot, he's wiggling everywhere and think about slams into his riser. It's because they don't, nobody ever practices that move. They're always pulling apart and they let it come back real fast. Well, when it comes to your bow, sometimes you have to take that 65, 70 pounds and lower it easy. And so when you're doing the springs, lower them slow. Don't, don't let them just speed and crack to nothing. And, you know, it's little things like that, that I try to do and concentrate on just because as a bow hunter, but I mean, you know, it, it, it's like that package. And I don't expect everybody to run out, do a couple miles of this and carry a pack for miles and then work out for two hours every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And that's my workout days. And when I go elk hunting and I'm heading to camp, I kid you not, I take several of my weights in my springs. And do you do really? Camp. Oh, yeah. And my son thinks I'm nuts. And I, oh, yeah. And I'll do my workout as much as I can. And if, as long as it doesn't interfere with my hunting. And I will bring those things and I will go ahead and go through. I just, it's just a mind thing to me. And, and, you know, maybe I'm a little over the top with it at times. It doesn't matter. It's just the fact that I feel much more conditioned that way. I I honestly will not take them to Arizona when I go, but (laughs) you know, hopefully I'm going to be hunting that much that I don't need to do that. But I don't know. The physical conditioning thing is all in your head. It really is, you know, meaning in my head that I know I need to do it. That's what I mean. Not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you don't need it. No, absolutely. It's like, Steve, I would like to know from Steve, what kind of conditioning did you get? Did you do? You don't just ride a bike and say, that's all I'm going to do is ride a bike. And now I'm conditioned to go ridiculous uh, 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 elevations where nobody else is really doing it. How did you prepare to get to that level? Because I've talked to guys that said, that you're an absolute beast with weight. He's incredible. And so, I mean, what did you do to do that, Steve? <laughs> yeah, for me, it's, well, it, you alluded to like nothing's done 
uh, half-assed, right? So I'm very, very competitive with myself. So whether it was mountain biking or hiking and hiking with weighted packs, uh, it's always timed. Every single workout I ever do, ah. uh, I record on Strava, uh, which is like a mountain biking, hiking app, and you have these segments. And so I am always trying to beat my last time. And I, and I think that's absolutely critical that to- yeah, to continue pushing and developing, right, and getting stronger because if it's so easy to, you know, just do the same old. Like you said, you could do some little three mile loop uh, and just la di da the whole thing and not really get g- better than sitting on the couch for sure. But if you want to make progress and get, you know, keep improving on yourself over the years, uh, you got to be, you got to do that. And so mountain biking, um, that was definitely I was got very competitive racing there. I was in the national championships in 2014 or 15. Um, and then since then I had my kids and, and that becomes competing at that level, you know, just wasn't, uh, wasn't an option there for a few years. I'd like to get back to it. Um, and then hiking, you know, obviously very fortunate to own a backpack company and part of my job is prototyping and hiking with backpacks. So I get to do that four or five days a week. But again, I'm always, uh, everything's timed. Mark and I were like, uh, well, people have heard it on the podcast. Like I've uh, talked about like wearing certain boots. I noticed they slow me down by 45 seconds in a one hour hike, right? Like, uh, I know my times that, that intimately, That's um, that I can, wow. yeah, that I can tell little, little tiny changes like that. So for me, that that's all I do. I like you, I've got a really bad lower back. I've got two pars fractures in my uh-huh. lower back. Um, and so I can't lift. I, I truly can't. Uh, anytime I try within a week, I'm, I'm laid up for, you know, a week or two weeks because my back hurts so bad. So those are the two things I focus on and they worked for me. They, they build endurance, they build lung capacity. Um, and when I get up in the mountains, I can, yeah, I can go. Yeah. Legs and lungs. It's where it's at. You know, I do the additional other things. It, it, it's for me, it's just a mind thing. That's all. It's something I've always done. And I, I it would, I, I would feel like a part of me wasn't, you know, fulfilling something if I didn't do those. And, and that's why I do it, you know, yeah, it is, but it's just part of my routine and it's part of my mindset that gives me a lot of confidence of, you know, when I'm out there and because all this is all about elk hunting. I don't know if guys can really comprehend that, but this is all about honey. If it wasn't for honey, I would probably be some little 180, 200 pound fat guy sitting on the couch. And I kid you not, <laughs> I probably care. But it all boils down to, you know, I want to do this another year. I want to do it another year. I want to be able to hunt with my son. I want to be able to hunt with others. I want to call for it. And I know to be able to keep up, as you well know, Steve, when you're elk hunting, it isn't who gets to the top first or who gets over here. It's the fact that you get there and and then still move and you can still, you know, be uh, have a positive attitude. And, 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 and that you can do what you want to do once you're there. And for me, that's finding elk, finding elk, calling elk. And, and you, a guy shouldn't have the limitations going distance. These days, elevation can make a difference. You know, like I know we're, we're a couple of the guys are going down like 3,000 feet. And it's like, you know, sometimes I have to start drawing the line because that's just that's just really brutal. Uh, and, and especially when you're not just coming out with your own weight, you know, with the other stuff. And, and, and there are times that I look at now that go, wow, there was times I wouldn't even bat an eye at that. But these days it's like, okay, I got to be a little smarter just because, you know, your age and no matter what, it doesn't mean you won't do it, but it certainly wouldn't be a habitual. That's for, for darn sure. <laughs> that everybody sees and hopefully the listeners will realize 
you know, the, 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 the physical aspect of it is necessary. And it's not just to pack out an L, it's to be able to grind it out day after day after day. And I mean, I've many days I've went 20 or 20 plus days with no rest, nothing. And just keep going, keep going. But and you can't do that because your head says it and your body says, no, it doesn't work like that. You may think it is. And it's probably a lot easier when you're thirties and forties and middle for it. It's not that big a deal. But as you get older, for a lot of the listeners, you know, that are older, this is what it takes to at least in your head think you still have that 40 year old body, so to speak, because, you know, a lot of it is mental, man, that's just all there is to it. It's people have asked me before, Paul, do you think it's more mental or do you think it's more physical? Well, it's an easy answer for me now. It wasn't an easy answer for me in my 40s. In my 40s, without question, it's mental, 100 percent. As you get older, you're going to find out it's physical. Physical is number one. Why? Because your head and mentally can be telling you to do all this, but physically you can't do it. If you did not prepare, you didn't train for it. You won't be able to do it. I don't care how positive your head is. Your body is not built for it to be able to pack elk out and to, and to get to some of the places where the elk are and where fewer people, you know, frequent. And so these days, there's no doubt in my mind that without the physical ability, my, my, my mental part would not be uh, fed from the physical part. There's no way it, 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 I don't care how, what mindset you have, the physical part now is the overwhelming feature that helps me to push on. And the mental, what does that do? It helps me through the slow times and the frustrating times, four or five days, haven't heard a sound, nothing. That's mental. That's not physical. Physical is I got to keep going. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. But I have to be able to physically be able to do that. And so, you know, that's how I see it now. It's, it is definitely has transformed from my 40s all the way to my 50s and 60s that I see it at a more physical uh, thing uh, as far as my mindset is, so, I don't know if you guys see that yet, but you will. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. I see it. I see it. I mean, I'm 37 and it's still, oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's great. That, that really is. Uh, you guys will start appreciating. Hopefully you'll remember some of these thoughts that I'm sharing because after yeah. older, you're going to go, you know what? He is right. I mean, you will see it take over where the physical aspect is more important than the mental, even though they both have their role, you you Mm -hmm. will see that happening. But, but nonetheless, you know, elk hunting is elk hunting and not everybody is a runner and gunner. Some guys are huge spot and stalkers. They have to cover distance. Speed is meaningless. Some guys are tree stand hunters, you know, so the physical ability is different depending on your level, your style of hunting. You know, myself, I'm a runner and gunner because I love hearing elk bugle. It gets me excited. The adrenaline rush as they come in those last 50 yards, you know, and at 66, there's not a whole lot of adrenaline rushes you get. You just don't, they're not there anymore. It's not the same. And you're not in sports anywhere. You're not, I mean, it, you know, those things are in the past, but elk hunting, it offers things like, and deer hunting or any kind of hunting, but that means you have to be able to get your butt out there and to experience it. And, and it, to me, it's the physical part that still allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's good stuff, Paul. Um, you touched earlier on things changing, things having changed. There's more pressure. Oak, you know, hear more hunters these days, all that. 
I want to, I want you to elaborate. So for you again, decades of experience, like what has changed and how to elk change and how to, how do hunters kind of need to change or maybe think differently accordingly because of pressure. And the pressure is from other hunters is what it is. I, I would take the wolves any day over the amount of hunters that are out there and over the counter easily. The wolves don't bother me at all. Do I like them? Heck no. <laughs> I don't want, I wish they were there, but do they bother me? No. Do they bother the elk? Eh, 5%. It's overrated. I, I see a lot of guys that are really heated about it. and they blah, blah, blah. Well, it ain't that big a deal as far as I'm concerned. You know, elk hunting is still elk hunting. It's still a challenge. It's supposed to be a challenge. Whoever said elk hunting was supposed to be easy, I don't know. It ain't. I don't care who you are. It's just not an easy you know, a sport or game to get into. And so going into it with the right mindset, you know, that part is huge, but you know, I don't know, you know, that's a, I'm just trying to think how to answer that question. Yeah. There's just so many things have changed and the pressures have changed and I don't really look at them as a big deal. I, and maybe that's what, where my difficulty comes in. It's not like, oh man, I wish this was, or that, you know, it's nothing I put my finger on. I think that a lot of people have had it easy in the past, easier. There used to be, there was a lot more elk, a lot fewer people. Nowadays, it's like the opposite. I think there's a lot more people than there are elk, you know, especially on over over the counter hunts. And so I'll tell you how, what, what I do to get away from the pressure. Like I said, I hunt over 20 days a year on over-the-counter hunts every year. My normal uh, occurrence on seeing people is maybe three or four in a year. That's it. I don't see anybody. And I don't bivy hunt. I don't bivy hunt at all. I'm hunting and coming back to camp every day. And, And so what I do, my main thing is I really, I stay away from trails. I stay away from most all gated roads. I stay away from access areas. So this is how I beat that uh, Aurora of so many hunters. And how are you calling elk and honey elk when there's so much pressure and other people calling all around you? I don't have that. I get away from it. So let's just say I'm going into a new area and this is what I do. My very first thing, and I've preached it many times, is I get the lay of the land. That's exactly what I do. But, you know, you can say I get the lay of the land. What does that mean to a a guy listening who's never done it? What does that mean that Paul goes in and gets the lay of the land? That means I go to an area, possibly that I've never hunted. If I know the area, obviously, I already know the lay of the land. So when I'm going to a new area, I will try to get there a day or two early. And if I can, I can't. Big deal. I still will take a day to get a lay of the land. And so what I'm doing is once camp is established where I want to be, I now drive around and I try to see where all the camps are. I try to see where the trails are from my maps and just from my research, like anybody else would do. And, but I want to see it physically. A lot of times what you see on a map doesn't really transparent what you see physically when you get there. It's like, well, I don't look anything like it. So I want to get my idea of a lay of the land, but my, the rules I'm going by are what I'm seeing on the map and by, on the road. So I'm driving around and I see all, and I'm driving as much of this unit as I can, not just a couple miles. I'm going everywhere. And I'm seeing camp here, camp here. I'm seeing what the country looks like. I'm seeing the trails. I'm going, okay, if I'm an elk, here's where a lot of the pressure is coming from here, here, here. And I'm looking up as well as a lot of times my phone, which I mean, who doesn't use their phone these days? It's incredible you know, with all the stuff on it now that you can use 
as a tool. And so I'm looking to see where are these elk going to go when the pressure is coming from here, here, and here. They're going to want to be over here. And then this area, they're over here. And I pick out a dozen areas. There's none of this one or two and throw all my eggs in one basket. I'm seeking out all the areas I can because I will eventually cover a lot of ground. And so I'm finding where these most of these elk are going to want to go from the pressure. You see, and that is how I approach an area. So when you see me hunting, you can ask Lenny, Steve, most of the areas we hunt, there is no access. In other words, it's not an access where somebody would park and there's a trailhead or a gated road. It's not like that. We will park where most people don't even think of parking and, and, and we'll access very steep country or rugged or tons of downfall, or you're going through a small river uh, that you have to put waders on to get across and then dump them on the other side once you get there. And your vehicle's just on the other side. But most people don't start in those areas. They say, what the heck with that? They're looking for easy access. And this is where everybody congregates. So most of my stuff where I'm uh, parking like that is I've done my research on my phone as well as I'm a paper map person too. A lot of guys just use their phones and don't use paper maps. But I think the older crowd like myself, you just can't get away from one in 24,000. They're my favorite. USGS. Uh, uh, UTM grid maps. They're the best. Those are ground navigation maps. They're not aerial. And so I don't care for longitude, latitude maps because those are aerial maps. They're not detailed. So you go to one in, tw one, one in 24,000 UTM grid USGS maps and everything will show you every little creek every, I mean you can even see ponds in every little piece. And, 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 and so when you have a map of an area, and if I'm going to hunt it, I actually need like five maps of that spot because it is really spread out at one in 24,000, whereas one in 100,000 or 125,000 are real common when you order maps like off my topo or flatline. Those are really exaggerated maps. I want everything where I can see ground navigation, and that is what surveyors use for ground navigation, setting stakes, ribbons, and land land out. They use those maps, not longitude latitude. And I had a friend that was a surveyor and he told me that years ago. And so, man, did I, that, that opened up my eyes. So I like looking at all that big picture along with my phone and using that to basically designate my approach where I want to hunt. And, and sometimes it means I'm going to call an hour before daylight all the way to an hour after daylight or so because I'm not finding them. And if I hear an elk at that time, you know, especially with it's still dark, I, I know it's an elk and not a human. So that helps cement it in my mind. I'm talking about there's elk right here, elk over here. I've caught, caught them over here now. There's no question it's not a human out there dinking around. Because all humans sound pretty good like an elk if they're a quarter mile, half mile away. It's really hard to tell. Now, if they're only 150, 200 yards away, it's easy to pick out a human usually. Even myself. I mean, anybody. You can pick them out. There's just those little nuances that don't fit. And, and it's easy to see a human over a, a real bull in most cases. And, and so that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking for the lay of the land and how to find entrances where most people would never, ever choose. And so by doing that, guys, I just don't run into any other hunters. I just don't. You don't see them. You, you're getting into areas. Nobody's parked anywhere near you. And so that's another tool to get up in there. When you hear an elk sound, 99.9 .9 it's an elk. There is no human back here where I'm at. And, and, and most of that is only... You know, anywhere from a half a mile from a road to two miles in, that's usually, I usually don't go much more than that. And I'm, but I'm going left and right. I'm going all over, but I'm not going distance, depth. 
I, I, I usually, and I, when I say a half a mile to two miles, I'm talking about a GPS mile. And I know yeah. that aim is Greg is more like a way a crow flies. So there is a little distance there. And, and, and it's like the bull I killed this year, uh, you know, last season. I shot him, and I think he was like 0.80 on my GPS, which was my phone. I used my phone. 0.80 is all he was. And I'd never been to that area before. Never killed an elk in there. Never been over there. And called him in on September 2nd. And, and, and so it got a bull that was bugling somewhat until just screaming. You would never think that that time because it doesn't always happen. But I read him. I knew his mindset. I knew when I got him into his bedding area, 90 seconds later, he was on the ground. And, 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 and that, that is what I'm talking about earlier when I said the commun- communication part, that level and setup. That right there is everything. I honestly believe most people would have tried to cow call that bull. Once they heard a response from him, they would have never killed that bull. I promise you. I've made that mistake so many times in those types of situations. But people, they get it in their head. They get it so locked in that every bull wants cows. It's September. They got to want them. They don't. They do not. I promise you, we kill so many more bulls with bull sounds by a mile and call in bulls with bull sounds. The cow call is just. It's like it's there. We do use it. Don't get me wrong. But the bull sounds, when I'm talking about bull sounds, I'm talking about creativity in your bull sounds. How to read the emotion. How to read the tones. You know, when, they're, when, when, when you're talking to them and if you upset them, how, what are you looking for in a bull that you just annoyed? See, what are you looking for? What does that tone change? And, and, and as, you, as you can evaluate that, you can now escalate your calling. Because you start to work him up or he's working you up. Whatever it is, you'll see his tone change. It's like when you were a kid and you said something to your mom. And it wasn't really what you said. It was how you said it. And she said, don't you take that tone with me, son. (laughs) And and same thing with a bull. As you change your tone, it annoys him. It can aggravate him. And he's telling you, get out of here. Get back or else. And that's what you're doing with your tone. And, 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 and it's the same thing as you understand elk sound. Cows will make a certain sound to bring something to the fold or to keep something away. Bulls will make certain sounds that bring other elk their way or tell them to stay at bay. And others will tell them, you know, you can stick your head in the sand, buddy. I'm staying right here. I'm not leaving. That's all through your tone. They don't speak English or any other language. It's their tone of their sound, their emotion. As it rises or lessens, whatever it is, that's how they send their message. And once guys start understanding that, that is the level of communication I'm talking about. I'm not talking about how great of a bugler are you, how good of a cow caller, how great you grunts and chuckles, how great you can pant or glunt, and yet you know the meaning of none of them. They're just sounds to you, but you're good if you don't know when to use them. That is where guy sees things fail one after another. And that's why you see the, the kill rate on most of these over-the-counter units is between 8 and 10%. That's all it is. It's been that way for years. You know, you can go to any stat uh, place you want to. And, and any state that is kind of OTC or general season, you'll see that those numbers are all very, very common uh, of, of the success rate because people don't know how to communicate. And then when you do, they screw it up on their setup. And that is one of the most crucial things. I think if people were to square away and, and have mock setups, they would kill so many more elk or have more opportunities to have elk closed. People mess up setups so much 
And when I did a podcast or a webinar with Jason Phelps, him and I, when we did that one for a couple hours, he was spot on 100%. He says, Paul, there's no question in my mind. Setups is what people fail at by a mile. It's that exact thing. So it's nice to see, you know, other people are agreeing. And I'm sure other elk killers are, doing, are saying the same thing. That costs people more than any other thing. And once you can come so, combat those things, good results happen. We are, what are the most common mistakes people are doing in a setup? They don't set up in the right spot. It's horrible. Uh, you'll be, and, and especially with a newer hunter, or a, I, when I say newer hunter, I don't mean a guy that hasn't bow hunted much. I mean a guy that hasn't bow hunted with you much, that type of thing. Because when it's my son and I, for example, and that's really the common theme here is my son and I hunt together more than anything. We don't, I mean, we'll take people out. Uh, and, and others know that, but we're, we don't hunt with three and four and five other guys. We don't do that. It's if they want to come with us and see how it's done, that's one thing. But for the most part, I'm either by myself, I'm with my son or, you know, we've invited somebody, but it, it's more unusual than common. So when you get a guy out there, as opposed to my son, my son learned from me. So mistakes are mistakes. They happen. It's just the way it is. But he learned from me. So, so he didn't have an outside source that was affecting his thought. So we're on the same page all the time. Now he, he turned 43 uh, yesterday. And, and so he, he knows the way we think. I know the way he thinks without him saying anything. He knows how I'm thinking. So when we're doing a setup, I do everything I can. And, and so when we're talking about a setup, we can do a, a solo one and we can do one that's tag team. Tag team is just my funnest. That's why we do it, you know. But on a tag team setup, you will find, and it will take a lot of years of errors if people don't pay attention to what I'm going to say right here, but you will find you will call in way more elk and kill them if your caller can see your shooter. So many times that people make the mistake, their caller cannot see the shooter. So what he's, what's happening is he is just trying to go on gut feeling or what he hears and a lot of times it's nothing. Sometimes the bull screaming, that makes it great as anybody can figure that one out. But when it's not happening like that, because you have to understand as we are not the guy out there that is challenging everything and only getting two out of 10 to come in. We're the guy out there trying to call 10 out of 10. In. So our setups and our calling sequences can be from an advertising, which a bull hardly ever bugles coming in from that. You can go to a breeding sequence. Once again, very little bugling is, is, is exchanged between you and the bull coming in. They're slipping in on you. Cold calling, same thing. Until you get into your challenges, your full send stuff, uh, your slow play, you can really get them worked up on those. See, everything has a little different thing, but it's very important in a setup that I see my shooter. Or if I'm the shooter, the, my, the caller, being my son or whoever, is can see me because they're reading my body language. And so even if I'm just seeing a piece of them, it's real important that I can see the shooter regardless of the setup. But as I see him, I can tell what's going on. If I see him tense up, if he's just sitting there, arrow knock, of course, everybody has an arrow knock in the setup and you're sitting there, 10 minutes goes by and I can see him lazily not doing much. I can tell not much is happening. But if I see his body tense up and I see his bow arm come up, I see his bow coming. And he's not drawn, but I can see him. And all of a sudden, he's tilting to the right. He's tilting to the left or straight ahead, whatever it is. 
there's something coming and I don't even know it, but I read it from my shooter. I can tell immediately, okay, we finally got something coming. Whether it's sneaking in, he sees pieces or he hear it cracking things. And Paul has, is one of them guys when it's my son shooting, he hears everything. I mean, he hears every little thing. And me, I hear like nothing. I mean, it's just the truth, unless they're screaming. But unless something pops something 20 yards from me, I really don't hear it. So I am very focused on movement because I, my ears aren't that great from being a masonry contractor and being too tough to wear earplugs. You know, you think you are, but as you get older, you feel you realize how stupid you were. But the point is, is I don't hear as well. So when I'm reading the body language, that tells me as a shoot, as a caller, I may have to slip off and go to the left. I may have to back up. I may have to go to the right or I, I may stay where I'm at. I'm reading his body language and it tells me if the bull's coming in too far to the right, he's swinging way left. Like, oh, maybe this and it's real thick timber. We hunt a lot of tight country. I'll swing over to my right and start pulling the bull across, even though I don't hear him or see him. I know he's there. I can tell by Paul's language what's going on or whoever the shooter is. That is such an important setup. Too many guys just shove a shooter out there. And in addition to that, I'll tell you what callers, when guys are hunting together and there's two, three, four, the biggest mistake you will make, I will promise you, it will come down to it every time. Never send more than one shooter out. Guys who send more than one shooter out, to me, have little experience. They just keep doing it because they think it's the right thing. Some guys will get in areas and they'll put two and three shooters out there. Biggest mistake you can ever make. Because it will cost you more elk than anything. It's too competitive. This guy wants to shoot first. No, this guy does. Oh, the elk may be not coming in close enough to this guy, he thinks. So I'm going to do something to make it happen. And they screw each other up. I've seen this so many times that I quit doing it. So if I do have three or four people there, and there are times I do, one shooter, no matter what. He is the guy that's going to make it happen. And he has nobody to blame but himself. But I tell you what, you will get more bulls on the ground with one shooter every single time because he knows he when he can move when he can't and a lot of times uh, uh, when the shooter's there you're trying to bring that bull to him in a certain direction but sometimes the bull there's stuff in the way that you don't see shooter caller that you don't have, you're not even aware of there's there, there's crap there that he can't come through but you don't see it because it's just it's, it's a little out of your distance your range and maybe it's a, a spot you really haven't gone through a hundred times so you don't know so he's starting to get around it He's not trying to get wind on you. He's just trying to get around the obstacles. And so as soon as he's hidden or he gets over a knob or anything, the shooter has to relocate quietly. He has to do it. He can't freeze and just sit there or he's never going to get the shot. So he has to know when to move. And I can't tell you how many times I've watched my son dart left, dart right, going up a little bit. And I'm going, okay, I can tell already he can hear the yell. And sometimes he's bugling the bull. And so it's obvious and he'll relocate real quick. Even though we really wanted them to come over here, elk just still have their own mindset. Well, which way they're going to come in? And so, so many times in those setups, you can't plant yourself as a shooter where you cannot move. You can't do that. And so I'm watching all this. Even if I only see pieces of the shooter, it is very, very important to me that I make sure that shooter is, I have visible. And I have always noticed that if I'm working a herd bull and we've killed over 80 of them, when we're working a herd bull, we usually stay within 25 yards of one another. We're not any distance because we're hunting timber. It's just a sagebrush. But if the open, if the country becomes more open, meadowy, and we have broken terrain, I will now push that shooter out still, I, so I can see him still anywhere from 50, 80 to 100 yards out because it's too open. And so what this means is the bull will usually get to a spot where he can look at 
where he hears the calling coming from and that he'll stop right there. In most cases, if he comes in past that, wonderful, but usually he don't. He hangs up right there because he knows he should see something. And so you got to make sure your shooter is in that vicinity. He's not too far back close to the caller where he's no way he's going to have a shot. It's just too far. There's crap in the way. So all these little things come into play. So when a shooter gets out there, my favorite position as the shooter is you hear people say, I want to be in front of this, or I don't want to do, you know, I want a shooting lane. We want avenues. Who doesn't? I understand that. I don't like being in front of things. That's just my personal thing. And it comes from past experiences, failures, and, and, and when it did work. But I like being next to it. That's my absolute favorite. I want to be right next to something. And, and it, when I'm next to it, whether it's my right side or left side, depending on where I think the elk's going to come from. So there's no way to say, always be on the right side of the tree or left side of the brush or whatever. It's what way do you think he's going to come in from where you set up and heard him last? So that dictates that right there. It's brainless. You heard him to your left. That's where he's probably going to come from. He's going to come somewhere over there. If the caller does his job and the shooter does his job, you never, ever have to worry about a bull coming in downwind. My son and I, or others when I hunt with him, I never take that into consideration. Absolutely zero. I could care less about the wind direction other than it going to the elm. I don't allow that. But I never, ever set up worrying about a bull coming in to catch my wind. Absolutely not. The only reason a bull does that, guys, and, and why do I do? Why do I feel that way? It's because of the hundreds and hundreds of bulls I called it, called over a thousand in, and, and 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 the only time a bull comes in downwind is if there was another bull that you never knew was there, and he's sneaking in from their left or right, and that because that's where he was, but not the one I'm targeting. As the one I'm targeting, if I raise suspicion, he will come in downwind. If the shooter moves any little thing, and the bull sees something that doesn't resemble the gender. That's when he comes in downwind. Suspicion has been raised and he will not ever go against his nose. No way. So now his nose is his survival mechanism. He will now try to come in downwind because something happened over there that raised suspicion. If I did something through my calling that he kept trying to get me to come over and I didn't read it right and I'm just making elk sound, all of a sudden he realizes something's wrong. So see, those situations are so important as part of your calling and part of your setup you have to know how to alleviate those things to make the bull feel you're always the real deal. But the shooter needs to be able to move left and right. Don't get behind things. Who doesn't know that? Don't get behind things. But guys still do it. Or don't get, what if you run up? It's happening fast. Man, that bull's only 100, 120 yards. He's over this little ride, this real thick timber. And, and as the caller, I'm going, okay, you need to get up there. Get up there. I mean, it's happening quick. His bull's coming. Are you going to plant yourself in front of a bunch of pine trees that are eight, 10 feet tall and get on this side of it? You are dead meat. You are asking for uh, mercy from the gods to have a bull stop in such a small window. It's a joke. You need to get on the other side of those. That's all there is to it. You need to get even with them or on the other side of them. I mean, I like getting in between where I still have a shooting lane left, right ahead of me. And he doesn't know where there. He has no clue. All he hears is a caller. But guys will plant themselves right in that or on the back side of it because they, why? They don't want to be seen. Horrible setup. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen with guys that hunted up for 30 years and they run up there and they stop. And I'm like, what do you do to myself? What do you do? This isn't going to work. I'm going to bring the bull in, but you're never going to get a shot. This is the dumbest spot in the world you could have picked. There's nothing there, but he didn't want to be seen. And, and, and guys, and that's why I say have these mock setups. If guys would go to camp or, or hit the woods, 
and say, okay, I'm going to be the caller. You're going to go set up. Where would you set up right now? The bull, you know, estimate how far or something like that is and have them go set up. You will find guys set up in the dumbest doggone spots. It just makes me. It, they have nothing. They can't shoot. They can't even draw. If they drew, they could not swing left or right. Couldn't do anything. And, and, and once they get that through their head, like, oh, this isn't going to work, you know, and when you're in the real life deal, you're going to find you screw up and, and you, you cost yourself a shot. That bull is not coming back in either. You've messed it up. He is done. He knows something's wrong. And, and, and that's what I mean by setups is you have to be able to set up because when I say things happen fast, how often does that really happen? One out of 15 bulls. I mean, seriously, it's not like it's every bull. No, usually you have plenty of time. You're working a bull. You're going to do a sequence. You heard them over here. You're not challenging every bull. So you have time to choose a setup. The caller has a time to choose a really good spot that if he needs to move, he can still do it, still see a shooter. So you guys, it's things like that. Don't put the shooter or don't let the shooter put himself in a position that he has no way to move. And his shot has to be on one little pie plate window. You know, he's act, he's asking for the mercy of the elk to just everything be perfect. And in, in, in actuality, you need to be putting yourself where you have all the opportunity in the world. And, and, and you're basically, you don't have to worry about him seeing you unless you draw with him looking at you. You don't have to worry about any of that. And, and then, so it's things like that. It's hard to pinpoint it and say, always set up like this or that. Because you guys know you've hunted elk enough. I mean, when you're out, when you're out there, the terrain doesn't always lean toward a favorable thing. You have to make something happen. So you have to, you know, and it does help from a lot of past killings and hunts and encounters, th things that work and things that don't work. I know I'm rambling yeah. on there, but it's so hard unless you're oh, right. Yeah, there's so much good in there. Yeah. But besides reading body language, Paul, do you, and maybe you and your son, I'm sure having hunted together so much, do a lot of things intuitively, but for guys who are maybe newer and are hearing about staying with inside of collar and shooter, you know, my head immediately goes to communicating, right? So whether that's hand signals, whether that's things like moving forward, and we've asked this question to, to different guests and even talk about some of the things we do personally, but I'm just always curious to hear from others, are there any specific, you know, nonverbal communication systems you guys have between a caller and a shooter and a setup? Uh, not really. I mean, we've tried things in the past, but we, but I do find that as long as I can see the shooter, that's all I need. I don't need okay. him point left, point right. I, I can read his body language. You know, if the bull's coming over to the right, I mean, the guy's moving his head toward the right, his whole body. Everything's positioning. He's not doing nothing. And so that's why it's so important for your caller to know his stuff. You'll find that the caller will blow a lot more opportunities than the shooter. And that's the truth because they don't know what they're doing. In other words, when they're back, they're calling and raking and doing all their little thing. So many guys just have no clue what they're doing. They don't know how to really to manage uh, a, a, an encounter. And, and, and make it real, make it positive and, re and just reading your shooter. That's all you need to do. I don't want to make it an overthink it, make it bigger than it really is. Keep things really simple. And, and, and I think it's like anything, the more times you're in that situation, it, it becomes easier. And once you see two or three or even five, you don't have to be in hundreds. You start realizing that 
when somebody is doing something or put yourself in their position, if that was me making that move, that's because something's coming in over here or something's over here or here's something. And, and it's so funny because I keep looking back. I can visually, mentally in my mind, I'm looking at encounter after encounter after encounter as I'm looking at the shooter. And it is so easy to tell what he's doing. It's like you were in the charades thing and somebody's trying to tell you, you know, it's this, 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 and they're moving their hands all over. I mean, that's what it is. You're looking at the charades in a slow motion because they're not moving that quick. And, 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 and you're reading it all. It's like, it's like you're up there. It's really not that hard. And, and you're picturing the whole thing. And the difference between having a shooter and a caller is you're basically playing both roles. That's all you're doing. And I've told people this so many times is that most of the bulls that we call in and kill, either one of us could have killed that bull. That's how the bulls used to come in. A lot of times they come in between us or they'll come in right on around and da, 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 da. I mean, I could have probably killed close to 75% of the, of the bulls my son has killed as, as that I called in. And he could have done the same thing once he called for me. So don't think that you're going to change tactics or anything about it when you're solo or tag team unless you're hunting a lot of really open country, you know, that changes things. And that's why I choose not to in a tag team setup. Uh, I would still probably play the same role, but I would have to call from one spot and move like hell to where I think the bull may appear before he gets there as a solo hunter, you know, but you have, usually have to cover a lot more distance. So basically nothing changes from the calling aspect. It's I have to now play both roles and my calling has to be in a way that I know my last sounds needs to allow me to maybe move 50 yards, maybe 70 yards, maybe 35. You know, everything is different, but I'm not changing any of my calling. It's still the same thing. It's me having to play the role of two. But seriously, I mean, when you are playing call or shooter, it, it's an art out there once you see how well it's done, because I can't tell you how many times I called the bull in for somebody who was not in the right spot. And I knew it the minute he walked away from me where he stopped. This is not good. This isn't going to work. This, the bull's going to come. This guy is not going to get shot. I, I can tell this just isn't going to work. And, and it's because what he chose. And a lot of times you're going, go up to that second tree. You have to see this. And his second tree was nothing like the second tree I was talking about. And that's what I mean. You need these mock setups. So when you say something and things are happening a little quicker than, than normal, you, you try to help them appreciate why you're choosing this spot over the spot maybe they were going to. And these mock setups are absolutely huge of, 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 of getting yourself in preparation of don't get yourself so limited that you can't draw and shoot at these elk. And, and I think that's why we take so many elk. Uh, we're not killing uh, uh, one elk out of every five you know, that we call in. It's like we're killing every single bull that comes in. I'm serious. I mean, not, not in the past, but these days it's like everything that comes in, he's going to get, he's going to see an arrow. And it's because we've taken a lot of these other things out of the equation. And these, I can't say it enough. These mock setups in these practice calling sessions with the guy, you're going to go out there and hunt and he's going to call for you. And you guys set up a kind of a mock thing that he's going to call using this sound, this sound, this sound. And then when you get out there as the shooter and he's calling, you're like, uh, wait a minute. That sucks what you're doing. This is not good. Here's what I meant when I said you need to do this and this. That's why practice sessions. That's why guys when golf go to the range. You know, they're not trying to work everything out on the course when it means something. They go to the range and they practice and they chip and they putt and they drive, you know, and they're going through all their irons. That's why they do that. If we as hunters would do something like that, 
once our, our, our buddies come into camp or whatever, just a few little things, you will be surprised how you work the kinks out of things that maybe didn't seem important until you get out there and you see it happen. You're like, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's not what I mean. And you'll see it's to the advantage. You know, you're trying to make the best of every opportunity out there. I love that, Paul. I think not only can guys do that, you know, in camp or preseason or whatever, but you can do that in the field during your hunt, right? Yep. You get those slow times, you're going to take a break or, you know, just you're covering ground, maybe looking for elk just quick now. Hey, let's pretend there's a bull right there, 150 yards or whatever. You're the shooter go like get set up and talk about that and debrief it, you know, during the hunt even. Yeah. And it's just like you're calling. So many guys have this myth in their head. And uh, to me, it's one of the, my biggest pet peeves I hear about guys saying, uh, don't, don't bugle too big and, and don't be too loud. Don't be too aggressive, blah, blah, blah. When it's time for that challenging situation, whether you're advertising yourself or you're in a challenging situation or you're being any kind of a bull, these guys have it in their head that you want to be smaller than the bull that you're dealing with, or you always want to be the small bull. So you don't run them off, you know? And the only reason things like this come up is because guys have had situations where they called and the bull went the other way and, and, and yeah. they blame it on their bugle. You know, that no, would be that, me. What's that? <laughs> so that would be me. <laughs> no, the biggest mistake in the world. And to cement this thing. And I do this with a lot of people. What you need to do is you need to take Steve out there with you or somebody and vice versa, and you put them 150 yards away in the trees, and you stand back as the caller, and I want you to bugle as big, as badass as you can. I want you to let it rip. And when you do this three or four times and Steve comes back, he's going to say, dude, you don't sound nothing like a big six-point. That really is guttural. You think you do when you're both are standing side by side, but when you get 150 yards out, you don't sound nothing like that. You think so. So my point is now you reverse roles. Now Steve calls for you and you go, and Steve thinks he's just sounding big and awesome. And I do the same thing. I, I mean, it sounds so good right there. But when you get that 150 or even 200 yards and you listen to yourself and, or you hear the other guy calling, you sound nothing like a bull at that same distance. You sound like a wimp. You do. Uh, Corey, all of them do. They sound like they're whining out there. And, 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 and what I'm trying to show you is we cannot match these bulls. We think we are when we're both five feet apart, but not when you're out there. Go listen to it. And, and, and if you guys have never done it, you are going to laugh. Give it the biggest lip balls, everything you can do, the biggest challenge, get it a distance, and you will find out you guys sound like a couple of three-by-fours out there. And I'm not kidding. So never let that be the, the, the way you call. What, what, what kills bulls isn't how big you sounded. It's the aggression. It's how you change your tone. It's the message you're sending. If I'm going to give uh, uh, this, let me show you. I'm going to give you an example. Right Here I am. I'm going to call. And I'm going to give you three sounds here. Now, you tell me if you can't see the change of emotion, meaning my message is changing as I'm having a, 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 an engagement with another bull. Let's say here's my first sound. Okay, you hear that sound out there. Now, here's another sound. Okay, not as long. 
okay, there's three different sounds, all have a different meaning to the L. And what, what does the meaning mean? It means the bull's emotion changed from a location bugle, the very first one, and maybe you got a response back like the second one. And so you noticed it wasn't a like response. It was more of a real short, and he's telling you to stay away. That's what he's doing. This bull is not welcoming you. That was not an invite on that second short little scream. It wasn't like you got into a big uh, argument and you went back and forth a bunch of times where that enragement could even grow. But on his first response, he showed defensive action. He did not give you a like sound. So on the third one, if you would have got one with a short little lip ball and a scream behind it, same thing. It was he's showing you his emotion. When does a bull use like a, a short little lip ball or a scream? It depends on the situation he's presented with. Will he use it on another bull? Will he use it on cows as well? Absolutely. Because it's an emotional tone to a bull that's sending his message. If I was cow calling a bunch and a bull hit me with that sound, it's because he's frustrated that I'm not coming as he was already trying to call me several times with maybe some low chuckling, short scream, and I'm not coming like he's asking me to. And so now he gets more aggressive with his tone showing urgency or demanding get over here now and he could throw a lip ball in it he could throw anything in it now if he's working now if it's another bull and he's trying to keep this bull away and the bull is not leaving he's creeping in and he's still calling he can now get more aggressive with his tone and give a short lip ball it's the situation he's presented with and he's shown you the emotional status of his mindset that's what he's doing so all you're doing is reading his reaction by the tone of his voice, the same tone that your mother told you, you better not use against her. You see, and, and that's what I mean. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't the words. It was the tone of the voice as things start to escalate. And that is how I read the bull as far as when it's time to cut them off or what sound I'm using or what sound I'm hearing, what sound I'm looking for. Now, what if I heard a bull make a sound like this right here? He kind of went, now if i'm calling and a bull makes that sound what does that tell you guys you probably have no idea <laughs> so, i mean seriously because it's not something you focus on all the time that bull is asking you to come over he's telling you to come on over here that is not a bull that's in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in an intimidation mindset it's probably a bull very very uh, uh close to maybe being two, three, four satellites already over there. And so they're inviting you over. So if you're in the woods and you hear that noise after you've given a cow call or a bugle, and it sounds like that, you know, that he's telling you to come on over. And that's what he's doing. He's not just saying, oh, there's an elk over here. No, he's communicating with you. So a lot of times when you're, when you're seeing these satellites or younger bulls around, and you don't have said anything, you just happen to see him, try to get within a couple hundred yards to hit him with that sound. They'll come over to you. They will not make a sound. They're not going to call back. They just show up. And so what they do is look at each other, oversize each other up, but that's the sound they use. So what I'm trying to show you is these different elk sounds. That's what makes you an elk caller and an elk killer. There's a big difference between saying I make great sounds at championship programs as opposed to being a caller of elk. And that is what, you know, a lot of this calling stuff is. Your setup's important. The sounds you're going to use. If I'm trying to call a bull in and I've used cow sounds and he's coming and then all of a sudden he kind of hangs up a little bit and I've used just the normal 
and I've got interest in him. And he and he and he comes back with <laughs> you see, just something little, nothing big. Or maybe you might get the bull to go. You see, just just little stuff, nothing, nothing big. And that's what I mean. He may give you little things like that. And so you keep cow calling and you're not coming because he's telling you to get over there. He may go a little longer. And he'll just keep moving on him. And now you're not coming. He may throw a short bugle into it. My point is, is he gets frustrated because you're not doing what he's asking. So if I'm not, if, if, if he's not moving fast enough, I may ask him to come over to me. I've made the cow sounds. I've made the connection. He's not coming. I got some openings. I can't just close the distance. So I have to bring him over. So now I'm going to go. <coughs> drop my note. That's asking him to come over. This is what cows will do as they ask any elk, bull or another cow, group of cows, and they're not coming fast enough. Maybe they're on the other side of the creek, the river, and she wants to bring them over fast or the bull. You ask him to come over. And so he's not doing this or she's not doing this. <coughs> this communication. That's what she does when she's changing her message. I want you coming. So many times, that's how I get the bull to turn. And here he comes. He's just coming slow. And many times he comes like halfway. So I have to encourage him to come over now. I get demanding. That tells him to get his butt over there now. There's no messing around. The same as if you're calling cows your way. You go to that buzz. That tells them to come and come right now. So see, what you're doing is you're talking to them. You're communicating. And so many times, here he comes. Because he knows exactly what you're saying. And, and, and I even shared that with you. I think I did. Maybe I didn't. Where I called that bull in. I, I, I located the bull with a, with a location bugle probably half a mile away. I could barely hear him. And I, I, this was a day that my son was with me and we had a, a friend. We wanted him to kill a bull. He never killed a bull over a spike. He killed one. And so I, we brought him into the area. And as we kept contact with the bugle until we got probably within where he, I knew he could hear cow calls real good. And it was probably still a quarter mile away. And so I went with just the cow sound of, of, of a cow that heard him. And so when, so when I want a bull to know that I heard him, I'm not doing this. That doesn't mean squat. All that means to a bull is, hey, there's a cow down there. It doesn't mean she heard him. doesn't mean nothing to him. So what I want him to know is I heard him and I'm coming your way. And that's where she'll change her tone and she'll go. So, so I'm not calling her to her. I'm not calling him to me. I'm, I'm letting him know I'm coming to him. And you'll hear her do this. And that's what she'll do. She'll go right at him. If you've ever cow called bull, have you called bulls in views in a bugle? You'll hear them doing this like crazy. They just come at you. The chatters, things you ever heard, you know, more than one cow. And they're just hammering it. So I use this a lot. And, and this is the sounds I'm using. So see the difference what I'm talking about, about as far as communication. We're not talking about making elk sounds here. We're talking about talking to them. So he knows what my mindset is. And I'm coming. I'm cutting the distance. So if I get to the point, like I said, that I can't get anymore because I'm afraid I'm going to be busted. If I can, I take it right to them. 
If I can't, I now try to pull them over the rest of the way. I've made it this far. And a lot of times as I'm calling like that, I notice the bull's also coming my way. So it's a good thing. That bull's in real big trouble when I'm moving and so is he. And we're closing the distance because he's chuckling me or he may just give me a. You see, it shows that he's answering. I'm building up his, his anticipation, his excitement because he's coming, I'm coming. And you'll hear him make these little sounds as, the, as you guys are closing the distance. But anytime I get to the point where I now I need to call him over. And in most cases, that's what I do. Even if the timber in the cover is there, I still do it because I found many, many years ago that when I get him to make the last move, the odds go tremendously on my side than me trying to cover that last few yards I need to silently go in and kill him. And I've done that too, but the odds are far greater in my favor to get him to make the last move, you see, and for him to come into my range. And the minute he comes in, and I need to stop. That's all I do. And it freezes him right in his tracks. Right there. He's done. Because yeah, I don't care how fast or how hard he's running when he's coming in. He will plow dirt to stop. Because you asked him something. See, that sound means, what are you? Where are you? And I need a visual from you. I, I, I know you're right there. I can hear you. And so it's asking a reaction from them. If I cow called, yes, it, it can stop him but usually not as fast because it doesn't ask an action. A cow call just means there's a cow there, but you haven't asked anything. So these are the things that make all the difference in the world in all these setups that we're doing in our calling situations. You know, I, I could go on and on with all kinds of little things that, that helps us to cement the deal. It's like, you know, it's like when I got a bull worked up and he's coming into a hundred yards and he will not come any closer. How many times have you guys had that? He can't see you. You can hear him. He's bugling you and you're bugling him and you can't get him to break that last bit. And you have a shooter up there 30 yards or whatever, but you can hear him a hundred from you and he won't come. He's you guys bugle back and forth five times now and you're screaming, you're raking, he's raking. He won't move. Here is one of the things I do that gets him to commit. And, and, and several of the biggest bulls Paul's ever killed is because I had to resort to this at the very end. And as soon as I did, here they came. I mean, close shots, right inside 20 yards. They come storming in. And the reason is that this little sequence I use right here, it really puts them on their heels. They don't like it. Because most of the time I'm doing this, I'm working a bull on his turf. So what that means is he gets territorial for that little spot he owns of, of real estate. And that little stop, spot could be an acre, it could be a few acres, but he will call that his domain. And if another bull comes in, whether he has a hot cow or not, if he has a hot cow in there, this just gives me two times of the amount of possibility I'm going to get him in. But a lot of times, whether a bull's by himself or he's with cows, and this is usually a good bull I'm dealing with, I can tell by a sound. I'm not dealing with a satellite, a little a dink here. I can tell this is a bull that is very territorial for his spot. He's being defensive. He's being protection, uh, protective of it. So what you do is you lay the line in the sand. You let him know, don't you dare cross this spot or else. That puts him over the edge like you cannot imagine. And I'm talking about over-the-counter bulls that see it all. And so what I normally do on that one right there is I'm showing emotion and I'm showing excitement for the situation. I've already called, called, I break, I, we've got it going back and forth and he's not committing. And I can already tell, I got to do something different. I got to suck him in. And so now I show excitement and frustration 
for my situation. And the only way you can do that is to pan. And you... And a bull will do that as he gets anxious, frustrated. Whether he's calling the cow and she's not coming, he can do that. He can also do it toward another bull. Again, it's a sign of emotion. That's all it is for the situation he's presented with. So as soon as I do that, I'll give him that. As soon as that is the ultimate sound a bull will ever give, he will not do anything else. That is the top of the pinnacle. Anytime you pant, you give that single bark and you scream over the top of it, here he comes. This it, it, I have not had a bull hang up yet doing that. They come running in. I wish I could do 10 bulls a year like that, but there's so few <laughs> situations that they supplies in. You see, you're working a decent bull here. You see the herd bull and you just every bull you come across isn't that bull. But when it is that bull, did you see? Well, you've seen a couple of those pretty big bulls Paul's killed. That is the last sound they heard. And that was including that 348 bull he killed that I sucked him in from roughly 100 yards away. And Paul shot that bull 17 yards. And this other one that was a monster, I pulled him in. This was over the counter, five yards and several others, you know, because he's killed quite a few of them. But I don't have to do that on every bull. It's only when the situation requires it. So you can see I change my cow sounds up. I change my small bull sounds up. If it's a younger bull and I'm still trying to suck him in, you'll hear him. Remember that little sound? He's kind of going, he blows. He goes. And then he'll just give you that little. That's it. And it may sound like nothing to you. And how much you want? I bet. I bet anything. You guys have heard a bull make that sound to one of your calls, and it didn't really mean anything to you. It's like, ah, there's just a little bull over there. Have you guys ever heard a bull make that little weenie sound like that? Oh, yeah. And probably just you you track, you you, you you checked off the box. Just there's a bull over there. Yeah, he's a little guy. No, he was asking you to come over there. If you use that sound back to him. What the hardest part about it is hearing him blow. Sometimes the distance is greater, but this is very common for the bull to give that. And then he gives it. So you can do it through your hand too. If you just happen to be that guy going. And you're just giving that weeny little nothing. And that's what they'll do. They're telling that other elk to come on over. And so remember all these little things, you guys, this is how we kill all these elk and call these over the counter bulls. We're not out there just making cow calls and throwing bugles and hope something sticks to the wall. No, we're doing our best to adapt to each situation, adapt and adjust. And that's why we have different tactics for different things. And this is why we will call so many of the bulls in that we're dealing with. And a lot of times, you know, you really don't have to go to these measures on these better units. Or if you're dealing with elk that see no hunters at all, or very few, usually a few cow calls and some bull sounds, it's enough. And they come in so curious, but on these over the counter and they get hunted a lot and they're pressured, you have to understand when you're using certain one of these tactics or sounds, you have to get the elk where they want to be. If you start trying to use stuff like this and saying, Paul, it's not working. Most of the time you're getting elk on the move. You're getting them leaving the feeding area and they have that 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the distance to their bedding area. They have that transition area. You're trying to bring them back where they came from. It's not a good idea. It, you just need to keep tabs on. Them. It's the same thing with the bull I killed this year. This bull went over a half a mile. I heard him way down below. And we, we heard him here. 
we called and heard him here. We called and heard him. And still a half mile away. He's way out there. And called again. And just to keep tabs, when I say called again, it was like every few minutes to see where he was. And he would answer back. Finally, we got him to where he had like two or three bugles from the same spot. And I told Paul, I said, that's where we're going to kill him, right there. We're going to get that bull right there. He's in his bedding area. And when he got to his bedding area, he bugled a couple of times. Nothing big. He just bugled on his own. And I said, okay, he's not going to like an intruder bull. We'll get in there a couple hundred yards, cow call, and see what he does. We cow call, you would have never known he existed. That was it. Nothing. And so I, I told the boss, don't cow call him. He could care less. I said, we're going to kill this bull through bull sounds. What we're going to do is we're going to get in there and we're going to advertise ourselves as a new bull into this spot. It's his spot. We already knew that. We didn't know if he had cows or not. Found out later he did. But so we got up there. We set up. I'm only probably 30 yards from Paul. Paul lets out a bugle and this bull hammers him right back. So now Paul cuts him off best he can. And he gives a couple growls and he starts raking. The bull bugles and Paul bugles two or three times real fast. <laughs> nothing monstrous, nothing little, just solid bu- advertising bugles. Advertising meaning this bull announcing himself in this guy's spot. And all of a sudden I saw him come. I saw him coming like 90, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40. And there was a knob in front of me. It was probably 20 feet tall. And I thought, and I'm at the peak of this knob looking over and I see him coming through the timber, just pieces of him. And I'm thinking, okay, as soon as he gets right here, I'm going to stop him and kill him. And I ranged it. It was 30 yards. I knew it. And so here's the, here's the thing that guys have to remember. This, this, this fooled me for a second because as the bull's coming through and I'm watching, watching, he gets about 40 and I draw, I'm looking for the t- cover. And as soon as he did, I, I jerk back, I'm pulling 65 pounds. And I'm right here. I'm looking at my window. My window is probably five feet, you know, so it's a big window and I'm going to stop him in the window and I'm getting ready. I have the reed in my mouth. I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to do this. That's what I'm getting ready to do because the cow call, most case, cases, I watch them take two, three, four more steps. They stop, but I need them to stop there, not over here. And so I found out the nervous brain just kicks their butt and locks them up. So as soon as he hits it, I'm getting ready to do this. And he walks through that opening. Well, what happens? There's a depression there, doesn't he? I don't even see it. As he walks through it, all I can see is his neck, his whole head, and the top of his back. I would have never guessed the ground dropped like that. But it did. It was very deceiving. And here I'm getting ready to stop him. If I would have stopped him, I had no shot. And he would have looked right at me. And so I'm getting ready in anticipation. And when I see him hit that spot, all of a sudden, my mind is reeling. Oh, crap. I can't stop him. So my eyes are quickly advancing forward. Like, okay, where's the next one? Because we're talking, I'm hunting timber here and brushy stuff. And so now I'm looking past him really quick, trying to say, okay, he's coming this way. He's going to come right through there. And as soon as he hits this little opening, I'm going to stop him. So now I see him coming through and Paul's bugling and the bull stops and bugles. There's a little bit of cover there and he bugles and screams at Paul, which is pretty cool because he's a really nice six point. I don't know if you guys saw that one, but he's a really nice bull. And as he comes through, I see him coming to the window. And again, I'm getting ready to stop him. And all of a sudden, he stops. There's a log right there. I don't even see it. And he stops at this log, and he puts his front leg over it just to, you know, because he had to slow down to get to it. As soon as he did, I thought, well, I don't even know if I, what I thought. It was the arrow. Was gone. <laughs> it was just <laughs> 25 yards. He's at 100% broadside looking straight at Paul. And Paul is right <sighs> next to the tree. And, and, of course, right when I shot, Paul says, I got to kill that bull. I said, I know he walked right between us. He came right on around. He goes, I watched him come right through. I saw you aiming forever. And it felt like forever. He said, I think you were pulled back a minute. 
from where I did at 40 yards and da 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 da. And I seen him come, and you know, as a shooter, who can't hold back a minute? You don't even think about it when the elk is there. It's not like you're timing yourself. But as he, mm-hmm. he went to step over that log, I was shooting a Viper trick, 425 green arrow for anybody that's interested. I shoot a, 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 the victory. It's like the 10th bullet killed with this. I love this arrow. I shoot the victory uh, uh, VAP, the elites, uh, 350. Mm-hmm. Nine. I have a 95 grain titanium still insert in it and a hundred grain Viper trick. And it's either a Viper trick or Exodus I shoot, but I, I this year I was shooting a Viper trick. I'm going to shoot it this year too in Arizona. I really like it. But I hit him and the arrow whistled through him and was stuck in the dirt on the other side. And I, I'm a 27 and a half inch draw at 65 pounds. And it was no match for him. It just blew right through him. But that 200 grains up front really makes a difference. But my total arrow weight's 425. And mm. I saw him, I saw he, I saw the arrow hit. And when it did, there was an instant blood spot on his side. It would happen so fast, but I saw it and no arrow. And he walked into the trees about, I would say, 10, 15 yards. And he's looking around. I've since knocked another arrow in and I'm trying to get a second arrow in him. You know how it is, guys. You don't take chances. You just never know. But I saw the shot was good, but it wasn't like, oh, he's dead. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that's going to get another one if I can. And he got in the trees and I'm I'm, I'm full draw. I'm trying to get an arrow. He's about 40 now. And he's just not, I can't get it. I can't weave it through. I see so much crap there. And I, and I could tell this thing is just going to go into no man's land if I release it. So he turns around and he walks and I see him go maybe 35, 40 yards and his nose is now touching the ground. Now, you know, I don't know how many elk you guys have actually killed and, and watched things like that. But the minute you see that, you know, this guy is mortally wounded. I, I've seen it so many times. And the minute their nose is dragging like that and they're walking away, it's like this dude is not going far. I couldn't get another arrow. I wanted to, but I couldn't. And I watched him walk at about a hundred yards away from me. And they went into some really thick pine trees and it dropped off. It just kind of went up, not much of a depression. I'm talking like 20, 30 feet. And he just kind of rolled over. I'd never been there before and, and, and hunted elk right there. But when I got over there, I saw what it did. And so I saw it roll over and go. And so of course, Paul's bugling away. He's trying to slow him down, you know, so I don't go very far and we sit there for maybe i knew it was a good shot and we probably waited 15 minutes and anticipation got the best of us i walked over to where i shot found the arrow blood was everywhere right on impact that is very unusual uh, we've killed a lot of elk calling on so what 64 together and and we you hardly ever see blood at impact it just doesn't happen you know maybe you guys have noticed the same thing but it's like they go a ways and then you start seeing the first blood but right there it was just everywhere and we go, we, we, we track the bull. I know right where I saw him last. And so we track it in. And it was, I mean, it was a great blood trail and I hit him probably mid height in the center behind the shoulder where the crease is about four or five inches. That's my favorite shot. I don't like get encroaching on that scapula in case you're high with your shot. I want to miss it. Cause you know, those lungs go way back there when you're only a few inches back from the crease. And, and he was all actually to my right. So he was probably quartering away from me a little, which who, that's ideal, you know, broadside mm-hmm. quartering away just slightly. And it drove right through both lungs. But where I last saw him, he was laying there about 15 feet. He had just walked out of my sight and piled up right there. And he had the blood trail all the way to him was just absolutely tremendous. And I found that with that Viper trick. There's something about that head and I've hit them high, low, a little bit back. And it's just, for some reason, they dump a lot of blood and mm-hmm. I've done a lot of thick country. So that's important to me because I can't see 
and I don't have dirt. There's not a lot of dirt where you go, oh, his tracks are right here. You know, it's there's usually yeah. a lot of ground crap and crab grasses and just uh, huckleberry stuff. It's just everywhere. And so I like to see a lot of blood. So I'm a multi-headed guy. Even when I'm shooting a longbow, I'm still shooting a three and four blade, four bladed head. It, it, it just dumps a lot of blood. And, but anyway, that's kind of what happened right there. So a lot of little things took place of, I wanted to shoot and I was going to stop him to shoot here. And I couldn't because he stopped on his own. And, you know, a lot of things you got to register really quick. Hard to say if this happens or if that happens, it's, it's hard to predict that stuff. You get moment, you know, absolutely. (laughs) So good, Paul. I legitimately, I've gone back to the conversation that we've had in the past and listened to multiple times uh, and looking at numbers of downloads on the show. I know others have, and this is going to be one of them again. It's just packed with stuff. I'm already like my mind's going back to things you said and like wanting to digest it more. So always appreciate it. Always a ton of good information. Uh, Definitely don't want to let you go without uh, letting folks know where to go to get more of your content. And obviously you have things like the app and other resources. So what's a good way if guys uh, want to get more? Number one, we'll leave uh, links in the show description to the prior podcast you've done with us. But in terms of your resources through ElkNet, uh, what's the best way to go check those out? Yeah, you know, there's no doubt the app to me is 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 really the top of the pinnacle of everything that we've combined together. And uh, I know we didn't get a chance to do too many updates this year. There was a lot of things that got in the way, but but we actually have a, a lot of stuff that's going to be brought into the app. As a matter of fact, some of the sounds I was going through here, I'm actually going to be doing videos. We're going to be doing five to seven minute video clips of going through some of these exact sounds and when you're going to use them. Uh, even though it's written in Word, there's something about video that makes it easier, a visual aid. So I want to go through some of those sounds like we did tonight, except you're going to see me do it. And, and, and I want to show them, you know, it's, it's so hard to do all that in the woods because you don't know what encounter you're going to be coming up against. But it's the app, really the home run hitter, um, things that complement it. A lot of guys will ask me, I do have the app, but, you know, I want more. And that's just how people are. And, and to me, the number one thing is that people wanted more. They really need to go to elfnet.com, the website. And they need to focus on just one package and it's package zero, zero. And it says works well in wolf country. It doesn't mean you have to hunt wolf country. It's just the title of it, but you're going to get the playbook and you're going to get volume four. And you're going to get the elk that five with those things. You'll see how the app and that really is a marriage. It complements one another. And I can elaborate a lot more on some of that than I can in the app where I'm more limited. And so just a combination of those things, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna help you. I mean, seriously, you know, in the years we've done this, we probably, we're probably in the seven to 7,500 people have taken elk with the content, with the information. So it's quite a few. And those are the ones that, you know, have gotten back to us. And, and so it's nice. And, and, and just so guys know out there, you know, a lot of guys ask, you know, yeah, what content and this and that. But, you know, I, I'm not a, a commercial type guy. I, I just because I think you can kill up with a lot of different things. You know, I, I really do. But uh, 
I have found over the years, you know, as I got older, I needed more support. And I really think boots like Crispy and Kenetrek, Kenetrek's my number one boot. I own three sets of Crispies. They all work good. But Kenetrek, there's something about them. And no, I'm not sponsored by them. Nobody gives me nothing there. I, just, I You know, I'm just letting them know that for lightweight, I've been using like that Under Armour boot and not the newest one but one's a couple years old that's still eight inches tall but and the reason i even mentioned this thing you guys because so many people ask me and they're very lightweight they like weigh one pound but the kenetrex are a little bit more and in my size they're not that bad you know uh, i only wear an eight and they're less than two pounds for each boot but i need the support because i broke my ankle years ago and, and and so that offers a lot of support on side healing and carrying weight and stuff like that and and without a doubt all five of us that are in the Elfnet crew, every one of us use the XO pack. And I'm going to tell anybody out there, I've used everything out there pretty much. And there's some good packs out there. There really are. And this isn't a commercial, but I tell you what, we can pretty much use anything we want. And the XO pack is number one. There is absolutely a brainless thing when I've used a lot of other packs and just how easy this thing conforms to my body, to Paul's body. One of the guys we hunt with, that's part of the team is six foot six and he weighs 285. He uses the same exact 3,200 pack that we do. He's actually using the, the K2. I think we have the newer one, but mm -hmm. he wears that thing like nothing. And, and Trey, Paul's son, he has one. And, you know, he's 14 years old and scrawny hundred pound kid. And, and I'm just letting people know, people ask me this a lot. What pack do I use over for, from all the years of using a lot of packs? And I've used packs for 40 years and I will tell them, and I don't care if I'm talking with uh, Rich Outdoors. I tell everybody that the EXO pack is absolutely the number one pack for us because of the fact it's comfort. It's so easy to load and it's adaptability. You know, if it's at 15 pounds, which is I, I wear usually a 15 to 18 pound pack on my all day hunts. That's everything. My first aid kit, my food, 70 ounces of water and anything, my elk bags and everything. And that's what my pack usually weighs. And that includes the pack weight and, and that's very lightweight. So I'm able to, to load that thing up at the crime scene, so to speak, my son and I, we, or whoever's with us, we can load our packs. And these days I usually try to keep between the 80 and 90. It just, everything after that really weighs me down. You know, as my, my son though, he's like Steve, he can throw 125 pounds and he's just gone, you know I mean? But you guys have that youth in you still, but still these packs guys, I don't even know if you guys ever hear about me recommending stuff, but I have recommended this pack so many times this year. It's a joke. And beyond. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, we hear it all the time. Yeah. We, we love we it. We, and I never say, Oh, tell them Paul sent you, but I do. I mean, I get this stuff a lot. And I mean, you have an XO pack and you are not undergun. You will have one of the most comfortable things you've ever had on your back. And you don't realize it until you put the weight in it. And, and, and is that not true, Steve, or not? Once you put the weight, that's what separates one pack company from another right there. Yeah, 100%. So anyway, for guys that are out there and they're wondering, I almost get this several times a week. What are you using? I get people that come on and say, Paul, I've seen some of your podcasts from a couple of years ago. Do you still use the XO pack? I mean, do you still think it's still good? And I, are you kidding me? It, I wouldn't use nothing else. And it's because I've used everything else. That's why. And, and that's the key behind it right there. And yes, guys, we still use it and we are not looking for anything else. This is so <laughs> comfortable. And 
it, it really is. And like I said, I'm not, it's, it has nothing to do with trying to sell anything. It's just, if you guys are looking for something and you're unsure because there's so much out there to choose from, you aren't going to go along with the XL pack. And maybe you guys don't even want to sell anymore. You sell so many, but it's true. <laughs> so guys having me on really do. And yeah, you guys can check out the app and this and that, but more importantly, I hope people that are listening to this really try to dig in and digest the information that we're sharing, because this is what it takes on a lot of these hunts just to be a caller and make elk sounds was great 15, 20 years ago. But as things evolve and these elk get so much smarter, so much more pressure, so many more predators, you need to have your game honed in to where you're communicating with these guys. And, and I see it every year. You'll see us share pictures where guys are saying, I, I never knew sounds meant this and this and this. And we actually took four out of four this year where we've hunted 10 years together and killed two. It is incredible how it has changed their dynamics and their way they approach their elk hunting. And they're approaching it with more enthusiasm and excitement. They expect to kill up when they go out there. And that's what I try to help people do. Have that attitude that I have and my son and the other guys have the total confidence that every time I step out there, I honestly believe in my heart, you guys, I'm going to kill a bull that day. Even if I don't, I, I really feel that if I can find one elk, I will pull him in. I'll read him, read his emotion, his tone, and I'm going to work with that. I'm not going to just throw anything out there and hope something sticks. No, I'm going to try to give him what's going to play on his curiosity or what he's looking for. So with, when guys start realizing that, they're going to find that they're calling nearly every bull in as long as they're patient, depending on the tactic of use. Some take a little longer, a few more minutes, but be patient. It's there. So I know I've taken enough time, but anyway, guys, I just wanted to share that with you. Love it, Paul. Paul. Yeah. Great way to wrap it up. Certainly appreciate the time, man. Hey, privilege is all mine, man. It's a pleasure (laughs) to talk to you guys and I'm actually excited right now. I mean, I'm not, I know I'm going to Arizona and I, I am anticipating all these things. I've had several people forward yeah, offering some really great intel on Arizona, you know, knowing it's a once in a lifetime thing. And at 66, are you really going to hunt there again? No. <laughs> so right. a lot of people come forward and say, man, you know, we had great success here and there and again, go check out these areas. And, and I really appreciate that. And, you know, a lot of these are guys that are hearing hearing me on podcasts like this that they've come forward because they saw it on instagram that i drew a tag so you mm-hmm. know what comes around goes around i want to help you and you guys are wanting to help me and i really appreciate absolutely I, oh heck yeah it's it's a, it's a it's a cool community to be a part of well there you have it guys it's always fun to listen to paul i hope that you were both informed and inspired by that conversation once again, if there's anything we can help you guys with, send an email to podcast.exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And if you're looking for prior episodes of the podcast, you can find the entire archive and a searchable directory of all episodes at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. We'll talk to you soon.